I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 9. As we look at this chapter, we're going to be looking together at the subject of God's uh, vengeance upon his enemies. And uh, certainly there is much uh, in the world that is evil. And the uh, recent attack of Hamas upon innocence in Israel uh, come to mind. We also have been thinking about the persecution of the church in other lands as a congregation. We were encouraged and we entered into a season of prayer for believers in foreign countries that suffer greatly because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And sometimes uh, when we look and we see uh, the things that occur in both in the ancient world and in our own modern world, uh, the question comes to mind, is there a God in heaven? Is there one who sees and is there one who will bring about justice on behalf of those who, are, uh, who have atrocities committed against them. And so it must have seemed in the days of Ahab, the king of Israel, for Ahab was an enemy of all of the godly. He was a promoter, not only of the worship uh, as, pre as previous kings in Israel had done, they sought to uh, say that they were worshiping Yahweh in the, by means of the idols they erected in Bethel in the south and Dan in the north. But Ahab was different. Ahab, through the, he was insti instigated by his wife Jezebel, he instituted Baal worship in Israel. And he put to death the prophets of God. And he put to death, no doubt, many who uh, were believers, uh, godly people in Israel. The Bible says about Ahab that he, no one sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. And uh, the passage that we're going to read tonight, and we're going to read it in two halves. I'm going to break it up in, it's a long chapter, uh, chapter 9 is. Uh, we're going to deal with the first half and uh, read uh, verses 1 through 16. And then we'll uh, deal with the second half. But you remember that Jezebel arranged for Ahab the murder of Naboth, because Ahab had wanted Naboth's vineyard. And uh, the commentator, one commentator says that uh, the whole of chapter 9 is nothing but a clarion call that re-echoes throughout the chapter. In fact, uh, not only chapter 9, but chapter 10. Avenge the blood of Naboth. And uh, Naboth's blood, like the blood of uh, Abel, who is spoken about by the writer of the book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews says that Abel's blood cries from the ground. And so did Naboth's blood cry from the ground. 
and it called for divine justice and divine vengeance. That passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24 says, You have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I want to think about that verse a little bit tonight. I want to come back to it at the end of the sermon. Because we want to consider the blood of Jesus that speaks that better word than the blood of Naboth. A better word than the blood of Abel. What is that better word? It's the blood of Christ that gives peace between God and men. So as we approach this passage, we're going to be talking about vengeance of God, the punishment of God upon the wicked. And some might think that that topic is decidedly unchristian. But nevertheless, the Bible does not say that vengeance is inherently in itself evil. If you remember what Paul says in Romans, he quotes from uh, he quotes from the book of Leviticus when he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's a reminder to each and every one of us not to harbor bitterness toward anyone else. And certainly not ever desire or wish for the opportunity that we might gain, that we could inflict vengeance on anyone. Such is never to be in our hearts. And yet, if you read Scripture, you'll see that over and over again, the psalmist prays that the Lord would be, bring judgment upon the wicked. Vengeance is mine. Vengeance is the Lord's. And so we want to look at chapter 9 uh, and looking at that work of vengeance that God accomplishes in Israel. We're going to read it and we're going to open with prayer in just a minute. But I do want to just remind us of another passage that relates to this topic of vengeance. One from the book of Deuteronomy and one from the book of Revelation. This is what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy Chapter 32, verses 35 and 36. Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people and he will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone. And so here we have a prediction that God says, at a certain time, a time determined by God, their foot shall slide or slip, and calamity will come upon them. And the reason for it is given by Moses is the compassion that God has for his children. Now, it takes us to Revelation chapter, cha uh, Revelation chapter um, 
6, verses 9 and 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The prayer of the saints in heaven, praying that God would, in his justice, avenge their blood. And so we note that we come to this chapter tonight, and uh, what I'd like to do is have us actually begin in chapter 8, verse 29. Uh, Pastor Rob, when he preached on uh, chapter 8 last week, pretty much set the scene or set the table for what happens in, uh, in uh, chapter 9. And so at the, be- at the end of chapter 8 and verse 29, we read, And the king Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram and the son of Ahab, to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. Chapter 9, then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and have him arise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber and then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head, and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee, and do not linger. And so the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council, and he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. And he arose, and he went into the house. And the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servant, the prophet's and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. And then he opened the door and fled. And when Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, 
you know the fellow and his talk. And they said, that is not true. Tell us now. And he said, thus and so spoke he to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth-Gilead against Hazel, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hezel, king of Syria. And so Jehu said, if this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. And then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there, and Ahaziah the king of Judah had come down to visit Joram. We'll stop and pause there. Let us pray. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, as we consider this subject, it is a sobering subject. It is one about which we sometimes don't dare to think. And even as we read of this account and the anointing of Jehu to be the instrument of your vengeance upon the house of Ahab. We ask, O oh God, that you would help us even as we consider the judgments that you bring upon him and upon Jezebel, that you would remind us of those things, O oh Lord, that have to do with peace, those things that have to do with reconciliation that we might indeed be right with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so uh, God's judgment had been announced upon uh, uh, Ahab's house by Elijah. And uh, you remember that in 1 Kings 21, 17 through 24, uh, that judgment had been announced. But, be, but because Ahab humbled himself and uh, asked the Lord to have mercy on him, the Lord heard his prayer. And uh, he postponed the disaster that God had, through the prophet Elijah, said would come upon Ahab's house because of what he had done to Naboth. And so we see then that uh, the Lord then will bring vengeance upon Ahab. And the first thing I want us to know is that when God brings vengeance upon the wicked, it is precisely timed. It is precisely timed and arranged. You can't help but notice that in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 29, we have the mention of the fact that Joram had been fighting and uh, had been wounded in Ramoth-Gilead and uh, that he had gone to Jezreel to, be, uh, re to uh, recover from his wounds. And then again, it is mentioned in verses 
verses 14 and part of, part of verse 14 and part of verse 15, the same time note is mentioned and the same circumstances are mentioned that Joram was uh, recovering because of his wounds that he had received. He had returned to the city of Jezreel. And I might just ask the guys if they would put up the map because I want to show uh, where uh, Ramoth Gilead is and then where, uh, where Jezreel is. Any way of making it bigger? Um, there we go. There's Ramoth Gilead. You see the Sea of Galilee here. Whoops. The Sea of Galilee here. Ramoth Gilead here. And if we were to go up here just a little ways, Damascus, the capital of Syria, is. Yeah, there it is. Right there. Thank you, guys. And uh, there it is, Damascus. And so you can see this is the area of Syria. And it is east of the Sea of Galilee, and Ramoth Gilead is down in this area. Well, that's where the battle was raging at the time. And uh, what happened is that Joram, what, what Joram, what happened with Joram is that he was, went over here to Jezreel. There's Jezreel. Sorry for my shaky pointer. But here's, here's Jezreel. And that's where he's recovering. So that gives you a little idea of, the, of the, the, the geography of it. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. But what I want us to think about, then, is the fact that the circumstances and the timing are precisely mentioned. And not only in uh, chapter, chapter 8, verse 29, and then again in chapter 9, verses 15, in verse 15, but again, we have in verse 16 mention of the fact that Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit him. It's mentioned three times, and it's mentioned because what the author of the book wants us to see is that the arrangements have all been made in God's providence for these two men to receive the punishment that God was going to bring upon him. And notice the word then, the very first word in chapter 9, then. It was then, at that, in those circumstances, and at that time, that Elijah told his uh, servant, the son of the prophets, to go and to anoint Jehu. And so, this answers the question, when did this happen? And it happened precisely at this time. It happened at the time of the 12th year of the reign of Joram. And we're told earlier in chapter 8 that it happened in the first year of the reign of Ahaziah. And Ahaziah only reigned one year. And it happened uh, when Joram had returned to Jezreel to be healed. And it happened when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, went down to Jezreel to visit Joram. Did these things just happen? No. God had brought about these events according to his providential control and working out of his will in uh, this matter. God was preparing the scene when he would bring judgment upon these men. 
when God brings judgment upon the wicked. Secondly, we see that God prepares his instrument. So first, we see that there is a precise timing of it. Secondly, we see that God prepares his instrument. That is, Jehu is chosen and set apart. Now, Jehu is one of the generals of Joram. And he's sitting in council with the other uh, commanders of the army of Israel. And uh, we're told exactly what happened. Elisha, Elisha tells his assistant to go and to anoint Jehu. Can, you can imagine this young man going into the midst of the council room of the generals who are fighting a war against Syria. And he's told to go into the midst of this meeting and to call out Jehu to separate him out and to anoint him with oil and to declare God's word to him. You can imagine what it must have been for that young man. He walks into the room and we're told that he did exactly as he was commanded to do by Elisha. And uh, he speaks to uh, all of them together and uh, then uh, he speaks to Jehu uh, individually. And then in verse 6 we're told that Jehu went into the house and then the young man poured oil on his head. And uh, he poured oil on his head and he said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. Now, Jehu was first mentioned by, uh, by the Lord to Elijah. You remember in chapter 19 of 1 Kings that Elijah had gone to the mountain, and there the Lord had revealed his will to him. And the Lord had said to Elijah, not Elisha, Elijah, go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. We've already seen how Elisha did this. He, uh, uh, Hazael came to him on behalf of Ben-Hadad, and uh, Hazael was told by Elisha of the horrors that he would perpetuate. He went back and he murdered uh, Ben-Hadad, and uh, Hazael became king over Syria. But the Lord also said to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And then he said, And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And so God, uh, through Elijah, had anointed Elisha, and now Elisha is carrying out the task that God had originally given to Elijah. And he comes, he sends his assistant to anoint Jehu, who had been mentioned all that time earlier. And this anointing is to be noticed because, of, as far as we know, no other king had been anointed uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel in this way. And what does it mean? It means for a person to be set apart for a holy purpose. It was seen as the Lord uh, acting through this prophet. It is God who anoints Jehu and chooses Jehu to be his 
agent in bringing about judgment upon Ahab. And it produces an effect. It produces an effect. And uh, Jehu, uh, with zeal, uh, does that which he is told. And then we see in verses 7 through 10 that the vengeance that he's to bring is clearly defined. He says, you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master. Notice that, you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge. So God, through Jehu, is bringing vengeance upon the house of Ahab. He's to be struck, and he is to be it is to utterly perish. He is, his whole house is to be cut off, and he will be destroyed. And then uh, in verse 10, we read of what God is going to do to Jezebel. The dogs will eat her, and none shall bury her. So we see then that God chooses the one whom he is going to use to bring about his vengeance upon the house of Ahab. And Jehu acts wisely. He ensures that no one is going to go to Jezreel where he knows that Joram is. And he immediately mounts his chariot and he goes to Jezreel. And when the Lord brings vengeance upon his enemies, Thirdly, we see that he does it in such a way so that his perfect righteousness is clearly seen. Now I want us to look at the rest of the chapter. Verse 17, Now the watchman was standing on the tower of Jezreel. He saw the company of Jehu as he came, and he said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send to meet him, and let him say, Is it peace? And so a man on horseback went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported, saying, The messenger reached them, but he is not coming back. And then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn turn around and ride behind me. Again, the watchman reported, He reached them, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. So Joram said, Make ready. And they they made ready his chariot. And then Joram, the king of Israel, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, set out each in his chariot and went to meet Jehu and met him. Where? At the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. When Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? And then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery to O Ahaziah! And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength, and he shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart. 
and he sank in his chariot, and Jehu said to Bidkar his aide, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite, for remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground, and therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. And when Ahaziah the king of Judah saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth-hagan, and Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblim. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. And when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. She painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. And he said, Throw her down. And so they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses and trampled on in the horses, and they trampled on her. And then he went in and ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. So we have in the account that we have just read, the evidence that when the Lord brings vengeance upon his enemies, he does it in such a way that it is vivid and it is clear that his word is coming to pass. And he does it in such a way that his perfect justice and righteousness shines in that punishment. And so the watchmen see Jehu approaching. And uh, he's standing on the tower, and he sees the company approaching. And the, and the watchman of the tower uh, sees this company. And so Joram says, go send someone and ask, is it peace? And uh, so the messenger arrives, and I, I try to imagine it in my, scene, in, in my own mind. Uh, 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 Jehu is in a chariot. He's riding furiously. A horseman comes up alongside of him and, and yells to him, is it peace? And Jehu yells back, what do you have to do with peace? Getting back. Getting back. And that happens twice. Two messengers are sent. 
And then finally, Joram himself, along with Ahaziah, go to Jehu as he rides furiously toward Jezreel. And uh, it is as though, as you listen, as you read the section, I asked myself as I was studying it, why is this here? Why is this elaboration of the messengers that are sent to Jehu? Why this time spent explaining the question that they asked, the answer that they were given, the order to get behind, and then finally Joram and Ahaziah come and ask the same question. Why is it so drawn out? Why is it mentioned as it is? And I can, the only thing I can think of is that the author of this wants to, in a sense, draw this out in such a way that he illustrates the panic and the confusion on the part of Joram and Ahaziah. They see something coming, but they don't know what it is. And they're confused, and they need to know, but they can't find out until it's too late. And so it is when the judgments and the vengeance of God come upon his enemies. It is as though it is fast rushing upon them. God is sending his divine justice to come to pass. It does not seem so from the outside, but that justice is coming. And so uh, as as, uh, Joram and Ahaziah come, we have a graphic description of Joram's death, of how he dies. Uh, He suddenly realizes uh, when he asks, is it peace, Jehu? And Jehu says, what peace can there possibly be given the fact of the uh, harlotry, given the fact of the uh, uh, policies of your mother Jezebel and her unfaithfulness and the unfaithfulness of the whole of the house of Ahab against the God of Israel. And as soon as, uh, as, soon as uh, he, he, Joram realizes that uh, it is not, there is no peace, he, he uh, turns. It says that he, he, he turned his hand, he reined his horse about, and he calls out treachery. And at that moment, Jehu, uh, it says, he filled his hand. He filled his hand with his arrow. And it's, it's, it's very graphic, the way that this is described. And he pulls the arrow back as far as he can pull it. And Joram is running. And he's going, he's riding in, in, in another direction. And Jehu pulls that string back, and the arrow goes right between his shoulders. And actually, the original language, the, the, the ESV translated, and it pierced his heart. The original language is, it went through. It went through his heart and out the other side. That is the Lord's justice upon the house of Ahab. And it is shown in the event as it comes to pass. And then we're told also of the death of Ahaziah. And uh, Ahaziah also being a relative of Ahab, though he is on the throne in Judah, Ahaziah also must die, and Jehu gives the order, and he is killed as well. And then finally, we have the account of the death of Jezebel. And Jezebel hears of Jehu's arrival in in Jezreel, 
And it says that she painted her eyes and adorned her head. And she comes out with all of this, all of this uh, effrontery that is so characteristic of her as, as a woman. And she approaches him in Jehu and says, you Zimri, the murderer of your master, recalling uh, Zimri who had committed murder against Basha, or Elah, excuse me. And uh, Jehu didn't pay any attention to her question, and he calls up to those who were with her in the window and says, who's on my side? And there are a couple of eunuchs there, and Jehu says, throw her down. And they threw her down. And it says that she, her body uh, landed and the, her blood was spilt, and the horses, and the horses trampled on her. The horses trampled on her, and uh, her blood spattered on the wall. One commentator said, she appears here at last, in her last moments, as she had ever been, proud, impudent, arrogant, domineering. She placed herself at the window, painted her eyes, and she grandly dressed herself, and she presumes upon her own majesty, instead of recognizing that she is about to face divine judgment, such as a picture of sinful human beings. Instead of recognizing divine judgment that is falling upon her and her house, and the punishment for her misdeeds, and instead of suing for graves, she who had shed so much innocent blood and had exalted herself against the God of Israel, she insults the instrument of divine vengeance as a murderer and a traitor, and demands that he submit to her, and threatens him, relying upon her own imagined power, if he persists. But here, judgment overtakes Jezebel. And the description, again, is very vivid. It is a description that is meant to make a picture and to horrify our imaginations. She is trampled by the horses, and she is, uh, she, her body is left outside. And Jehu and his crew go inside, uh, Jehu recognizes that Jezebel is the daughter of a king. She ought to be buried. He may be thinking of future relations with the northern uh, kingdom. Uh, and uh, he says uh, she, she ought to be buried. They go out to bury her. And again, the description is awful. Just her hands, just her feet, and just her skull are left. And she will be as dung on the face of the field. The Lord's vengeance upon Jezebel. Every word that the Lord had said has come true. How, do the, how does this account of the infliction of divine justice affect you tonight? How does it affect us as we read this? On the one hand, it ought to assure us that God is just and that he is righteous and judgment will come upon the world in his perfect time at the time that he has appointed. 
And it also ought to assure us of the truthfulness of God's word, that every word that the prophets said concerning the judgment of the house of Ahab took place exactly as it was said, just as it was described. And so God's word is true. And it ought to encourage us to act in faith upon God's word, always believing that whatever God says will come to pass. We ought to trust him. We ought to rest in the fact of his righteousness and his justice in the earth. And certainly it ought to remind us as well that God is at work even in the world in which we live. And through all of the various calamities that take place, warfare and pestilence, the Lord is working out his purposes and bringing his judgments to bear. But there is another sense, another way that this affects us. It affects us because it ought to make us deadly serious concerning our own relationship with the Lord. When we realize that the God who has revealed himself as the God of the covenant, the God of mercy and the God of grace, is also a God who knows us each individually and perfectly and a God who will punish everyone who is his enemy, all who refuse to repent and bow to his lordship. And what if the question might be asked, what if the Lord's arrow should pierce my heart? What if I were God's enemy? What would happen to me? And we should consider our own lives and the way in which we ourselves are sinners. And how the psalmist says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could possibly stand? Who could stand? Who of us, even tonight, could stand before the justice of God? And it therefore sets the gospel against this backdrop, this backdrop of divine justice. The good news of the gospel can only be understood against the backdrop of God's justice. And so when uh, the writer of Hebrews says that we've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What is that better word that the blood of Jesus speaks to you and to, uh, to me tonight? It is this, that Jesus' blood does not cry from the ground for vengeance. Jesus' blood does not cry from the, from the ground for vengeance upon those who slew him. It cries instead, peace, peace. For as many times as that question was asked in this chapter, it is only the blood of Jesus Christ that causes us to have peace with God. The gospel is the good news that God, through the death of his son on the cross, provided a way for you to be at peace with him. And he is calling you not to be his enemy. He's calling you to realize that now is the day of salvation. And now is the time for us to humble ourselves before him, to repent of our sins, and to call upon him. And we remember how merciful God had been throughout the years, even with Ahab, giving him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity 
to turn and to repent of his sins. And he never did. He only became more hardened. And what is it for you and for me? How often does God come to us and say to us, repent of your sin, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. In the words of the Apostle Paul, God through Christ reconciled us to himself. And Paul says of his own ministry that God has given us this ministry of reconciliation. And he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. God is appealing to the whole world and to all men and all ages and all ethnicities and languages. We implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we appeal to you, Paul says, not to receive the grace of God in vain. And so it is for us every night, every Sunday night that we come here, or every Sunday morning that we come here, the appeal is don't receive the grace of God in vain. God gave grace to Israel over and over and over again, and they received that grace in vain. They didn't respond to it. They hardened their hearts. And Paul says to those of us who are here tonight that Christ has been made sin for us. It is as though God took his arrow and pulled the string and caused the arrow of his own justice to go through the very heart of his own son. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, and he himself suffered that vengeance on behalf of all who trust in him, so that we can be assured and know that we do not need to fear that punishment for our sins because they have been placed upon Jesus Christ when, we, when the Lord comes to us, he speaks to us of peace. But what if God sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life? What if we cast that aside? What if we say it doesn't really matter. It's not really true. What if we harden ourselves? The writer of Hebrews says this, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. There you have vengeance a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, 
Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. May God enable us to repent of our sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, be reconciled to God in Christ, and realize that he has borne our punishment for us. What a blessing, what grace, what mercy has come to us in the gospel. But for those who reject the gospel, the day of vengeance still lies in the future when Christ will return again and bring punishment upon all who reject his Son. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we, do, uh, we are uh, struck by this passage of the sure, sureness of your word that you have, uh, you have announced that there is a day of judgment coming and that Christ will return again. And Lord, we ask that you would enable us by your grace to be ready for that day that we might be found in Christ. And we ask, O oh Father, that you might help us to uh, take full advantage of that offer of grace that has been given to us in the gospel. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final